Amen. So as we come to the scriptures together this morning now, uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, This summer, we are, instead of doing what we normally do, which is to take one passage of Scripture and just kind of methodically work our way through it, we are uh, looking at different places from the Bible thematically and then drawing from each of those places uh, along a certain thematic line. Uh, Nevertheless, what we read now, though we're going to read from, I guess, five different places this morning, uh, all of it is uh, the Word of the Lord, and it speaks to us as we just sing. So if you look in your worship folder with me, Uh, or it'll be on the screen behind me as I kind of piecemeal from different places. Deuteronomy 29, Job 26, 1 Corinthians 2 and 8, and lastly, Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The references are there for you. Let me just read it to us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And from Job, but behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? And then from 1 Corinthians, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then from Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And here comes the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. This is God's word. This summer, we are doing a series on the incommunicable attributes of God. That is, the parts of God's person and his character that belong to only him because spiritual weakness and struggle come most often from having small thoughts of of God, small thoughts about him. And so the key to spiritual breakthrough a lot of times is uh, what the Bible means by the word that we find over and over again in it, this word glory. And glory means a sense of weight or significance or a stirring that happens when we contemplate who he is. People who are strong in faith are those who live, and here's the way I'm going to put it, okay? They live from the top down rather than from the bottom up. We've talked about that before. But what we mean by that is what, what, what God is, who God is, and what he is like as a person and the way that he relates to us and the way that he goes about his work in the world, these are the lens through which uh, a person of faith views everything else in their life. That's what it means to glorify God, in fact. And so, you know, the opposite of that then is that the root of every sin, if that really is the, the way to faith, then the root of every sin is a failure to do that, is a failure to glorify God in that way. And, and therefore, the way to greater faith is just to, just to go right at that, attack, attack unbelief, as we just sang. May the words of truth prevail over unbelief, right? To attack unbelief with this grand view of, that the Scripture gives us of what God is like for the sake of having and seeing and savoring and delighting in more of his glory. That's what we're after in this series, that he would increase and that we would what? Decrease. That's right. That's our theme. That's our... Uh, thesis statement for these weeks that we're together. I was so struck uh, reading Community Bible Reading last night with my family. I hope you're reading along uh, with us. 
and we sat around the table, we read Psalm 123, when the psalmist says this, he says, To you I lift my eyes, O Lord, you who are enthroned in heavens. Our eyes look to the Lord our God. And that, that is really, that's it. That's how you live by faith. You live looking up. Uh, whether you live with peace and joy and spiritual power in your life or not is largely determined by how much, how much you look up. How much you know, instead of looking in, instead of looking around, instead of looking back, instead of looking forward, all the other ways that you can look, that you look up instead, and, and how much you know what God is like. Let me be more specific. A sense of God's glory really comes from the realization of how unlike God we are. So instead of sinfully craving to be like him in his self-sufficiency and power, we need to remember that becoming like God means becoming more human, fully human. That our smallness, the limits of our creatureliness, is the way we would put it, are not constraints. The places where we feel our smallness and our limitedness and our creatureliness, those are not constraints. They're actually freedoms. They're, they're, the, way, they're the way that we really live well. And so we should rejoice in the ways that we are not like him, but many times we do not. One of the ways we are not like him is in our knowing. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, that we need to know him. But can we? Can we know God? And what can we really know about him? And how can we know him? I mean, these are important, important questions for us. And really, I would say to you, and this is something just to kind of put somewhere and come back to it and think about it later, because it's a big thought, and I'm only going to give just about 20 seconds to it. But I really think those kinds of questions I just asked are the things that really we're divided over as a culture. The culture wars uh, that we've been engaging in all of these years now, my whole life it feels like, really um, are not about morality as much as they are about epistemology. What do we know? How do we decide between right and wrong, right? How, how do we know what we know? Really, really important questions. And I'd like to tackle these issues very briefly this morning uh, by talking about this attribute of God. We're going to call it the incomprehensibility of God. God is incomprehensible. Now, what does that mean? Well, you see, I have an outline for you there. It's going to be the same every week, just with a different theme. And you're going to see we want to first talk about God himself and what we mean by that and how, what, how it leads us to adore him. Secondly, we want to talk about sin and the way that instead of being content and being unlike him, there's a sinful impulse in us to want to reach out and grab even this part of who God is and have it for ourselves. Thirdly, instead, we need to learn to embrace our smallness, smallness and the limits of our creatureliness and glorify him properly in that. And the gospel really is the way we do that. And those are the four points there. Let me just say it this way to you. Really, what we're going to talk about this morning is that we have a knowing need. Secondly, we have a knowing problem. Thirdly, we have a knowing limit. And fourthly, we're absolutely dependent upon the gospel. And the gospel reveals that knowing really is a knowing grace. So those are our four points as we walk through these scriptures together this morning, okay? Let's talk for a minute. First, uh, let's see how we have a knowing need. And by that I mean this, that the best thing in life, according to the Bible, is not riches or wisdom or strength, it is knowing God. Can I say that again? This is Jeremiah chapter 9, let no man boast in any of these other things. If you're going to boast, this is the thing you ought to boast in, not riches or wisdom or strength, but in the fact that you know him because that's the best thing life offers. We are made to know God. It's the source of all of the joy and peace and power in life. Jesus himself said in, in uh, John 17, 3, eternal life is this. What? What is eternal life? 
It's floating around on angels' wings in heaven after we die, right? No, what is eternal life? It is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's the essence of eternal life. What does it mean then that we say that God is incomprehensible? Our topic for this morning. Well, let's just read a few scriptures together. Uh, Again, let's just kind of pull back to these passages that we looked at just a minute ago. And uh, let's start with Deuteronomy 29, 29, if you see there at the top of your page, uh, where, where we read, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And then I actually wish I would have printed it, but I think uh, the doxology at the end of Romans 11, if you have a Bible and want to turn there quickly, or you probably should know this by now, we've looked at it for a few weeks in a row, if you've been here, but here's what Paul says after all of these great truths in Romans 9 through 11. He says, Who has known the mind of our God? And how unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 2, 11, which is pretty for you there, where just clearly Paul says, no one comprehends the thoughts of God. And so there are a few things here working towards a definition of what we mean by the fact that God is incomprehensible. Uh, Let me say three things. The first is, we don't mean, God is not unknowable. God is not unknowable. He can be known. Look at 1 Corinthians 2 again. It does not say that no one knows the thoughts of God. What does it say? That no one can comprehend the thoughts of God. And there's a difference there. We can know God, but only as he makes himself known in a number of different ways. In creation, we're told in the scriptures that in all that has been made, and a lot of you, we just got back from the mountains. We were there for a few days this week, you know, and always in the mountains. Don't you go to the mountains and have a sense of just your smallness? Some of you, you're not mountain people. uh, you're, You're beach people. I'm a Floridian who's a mountain person, not a beach person. Isn't that just a horrible tragedy? So every time we get vacation, we like head north instead of heading east or west most of the time. Uh, but you go to the beach, it's the same thing. Don't you stare out at the ocean and just, you just feel small. So there's a sense in which something about what God has made is teaching us about his greatness and our smallness. Romans 1 says that his invisible attributes, his power and his divinity are plainly revealed. They're plainly revealed in the things that he has made. Uh, not just in creation, though, but also, as Patrick said a minute ago, in, in the scriptures that we've given, uh, this book is the recorded acts of Almighty God, his self-revelation, his self-attestation to us, to show us. He's given us these words to show us what he's like. And ultimately, ultimately, God has made himself known in the incarnation of Jesus Christ because in Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being that's the way hebrews chapter one puts it that to see jesus is to see god that we learn what god is like as a person most clearly in the person of jesus christ who leaps off the pages of the gospels in our scriptures god desires to be known and he has made himself known so when we say there's this thing called incomprehensibility it does not mean that he is not knowable secondly what it does mean is that he cannot fully be known Deuteronomy 29 says there's secret things that belong to the Lord alone. There are things about him, about the world, about us, about the way things work, about the future. There are things that he has not shared with us. There are things that are are revealed, things that we see of God in the world and read about in the Bible. 
and, 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 you know, those things that we can know, what, what uh, the passage in Job 26, I, I love that passage. It says, you know, what we read, what we see, what we come to know of him all throughout our life. In reality, all of these things are just the outskirts of his ways. They're like the suburbs outside of the city center, right? The things that can be known of God, Job 26 goes on to say, are a small whisper compared to the thunder of the power that no one can understand. So there's something about him. His judgments, we're told, are unsearchable. His ways are inscrutable. And those words mean that much of who God is and what he does is beyond us. He is simply too big and we are simply too small to take it all in. And that's an important thing to remember in the process of talking about our knowing. The more complex something is, the harder it is to know how it works and what it will do. So as a kid, uh, we went every summer to a dude ranch in Wyoming. It was the vacation that we took. So see the mountains. That's probably why I love the mountains. I haven't thought about that. Uh, we, we went out there. And uh, what, one of the things they would do is they would give you a horse at the beginning of the week. And you rode the horse for the whole week. And, and by the end of the week, you know, even as a 13-year-old kid, I knew that horse pretty well. I could predict what he was going to do. I kind of had you know, learned you know, my way around that, that horse. Because, of, horse, of course, horses aren't that hard to know. They're pretty simple animals. Okay, so the harder, the more complex, the harder it is. I, you know, I've been married to Ashley for 21 years now. I feel like I'm getting to know her a little, right? Sometimes. Not really, some, you know, sometimes, right? I mean, th- does anybody else in marriage, you feel that? This person, isn't it an amazing thing to realize there's this person that you could be with for your whole life and not get to the end of knowing them? Isn't that amazing? I mean, I know her light years better than I did 21 years ago, but I got a long way to go still. And that's a neat thing. But I will never, I will never in my life come to the end of my contemplation of my wife. And if that's true, then absolutely I will never, I will never in my life come to the end of my contemplation of God. There will always be more of him to know. In fact, even in eternity, listen to this, after a 100 billion years in heaven, we will know him better than we do now, but we will be no closer than we are right now to knowing him exhaustively. Eternity will be the never-ending joyful discovery of the wonder of who God is and what he's like and what, he, and what he's done. There's an apocryphal story told of the great St. Augustine walking along the seashore. It must have been summer vacation for him. Uh, contemplating the Trinity, you know, and he got caught up in in these things from time to time. There's a young boy there running back and forth from the water to a hole that he had dug in the sand, and the boy was using a shell, and he was going to the water and scooping up the water from the ocean and pouring it into the the hole, filling up the hole, and Augustine asked the boy, my boy, what are you doing? And and the little boy said, well, I'm trying to bring all the sea into this hole. But that's impossible, child, the bishop said. The hole cannot contain all that water. And this is Augustine telling, relaying this story. He thought maybe it was an angel later. But anyway, the, the boy paused and looked into the bishop's eyes and he said, it is no different than what you're doing. It's no more impossible than what you're trying to do. Comprehend the immensity of the mystery of God with your small intelligence. And there's something comforting to me about that, to be honest with you. I mean, I went to seminary for, well, how many? Four years, longer than it should have taken me to get through. Uh, I did school for a long, long time. But uh, at the end of all of that study, all of our tidy theological systems are little holes trying to contain the vast ocean. 
Because though God is not unknowable, he cannot be fully known. But thirdly, he can be and he is sufficiently known. In other words, what we need to know of him, we can know. What he has made known to us is what we need to know. So the secret things that he's not you know, given to us yet are things that in his mind we don't need to know. But the things that we do, he has given. And that 1 Corinthians 2 passage is really remarkable. It really is. Look there, uh, the two, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11. It says that the Spirit searches the deep things of God and reveals them to us. So we don't just get a, a revelation from creation and from the Bible. The Spirit searches the parts of God that are unsearchable to us. He, we're told there, comprehends the thoughts of God that are incomprehensible to us, and he makes them known as we need to know them. Not fully, of course. That's not possible. God is too big and we are too small to know everything the Spirit of God knows, but sufficiently. And this is the knowing we need. We have a knowing need. We need to know God. Eternal life is knowing him. Secondly, then, we see this, uh, but what we learn is that we have a knowing problem, that all of our knowing is, is messed up. And it's messed up because of what we see in the second point, that we are not content to stay within our limits, the limits of our creatureliness. The original sin in Genesis 3 was a was a desire to know. If you think, I mean, it really kind of landed on me this week that it really was you will know good and evil. It was this desire to have knowledge that they did not have that really led them. And that, that should really stop intellectuals and Presbyterians like us in our tracks sometimes. To know exhaustively apart from God, that's what they wanted. We were made uh, to borrow from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, another passage I wish I would have printed, uh, but I had to do it early in the week, and my study took me other places. But here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13. We were made to know only in part, but to be fully known. Okay, that's really important. That, I'm, that's that's going to kind of set the stage for everything we're going to say. So maybe if you want to write that down or just pin that somewhere, okay? We're made to, to only know in part, but to be ourselves fully known. That really is the essence of our, of our humanity, of our creatureliness. That's how we've been designed. Yet, we demand, here's what we do, we demand instead that God be easy to understand and we act as if we are the mystery. We require God to be simple and small. So to return to 1 Corinthians 13 and turn it around, we demand, here's what we really do, though we're made to know only in part but to be fully known, we demand instead to know God fully but insist that we can only be known ourselves in part. And this is a way of grasping for godness for ourselves. Now, you can see right away the folly of it. If you've ever taken a personality test, anybody like those things? My, my uh, family, we love those things. Uh, we, love to, we love to sit around and talk about that kind of stuff. It's amazing to go online and answer 25 questions, right, of this random test. <laughs> Pick whichever one. Myers-Briggs, I love the Enneagram, whatever you want to do. But you go, you, take, you, know, you answer a few questions. It takes five minutes. And then, of course, the summary comes up, and you read the summary, and you're like, how do they know? And it just absolutely pegs you, right? You know what I'm talking about? It's like you're looking in a mirror. It's like, what? How? And for some, it can be an unsettling thing to, to, to really realize I'm, I'm that predictable. I'm, I'm that knowable. I'm that small. I'm that unlike God. It's hard to admit that we're that easy to read because the truth is that these tests seem to know us better than we know ourselves. And that's a problem. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah again, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What that means is, is that our hearts are constantly deceiving us with misinformation and keeping us from self-knowledge. We think better of ourselves than we should, or we think worse of ourselves than we should. Uh, we don't see the sinful motivations that are driving us, right? We call it justice when really it's just jealousy. Or we don't see the greatness that we should because our hearts are constantly condemning us. We only know ourselves in part. We don't even know ourselves fully. How do we think, how can we think we'll know anything else fully? And one of the ways our hearts deceives us is to prop up the myth of our own incomprehensibility. We want to be the one, not God, who is characterized by being incomprehensible. In our sin, we want to think of ourselves as being just as vast and mysterious as he is. So Jen Wilkin writes this, I want to believe that I am the special case, the exception to every rule, the possess I love this, the possessor of extenuating circumstances that others are not aware of. When correction is offered to me, I tell myself that it's offered in error. Of course they're wrong. Of course they're wrong. If people really knew me, they would know that they're wrong to find such fault. And it's humbling. It's humbling to realize that a 25-question random question test can know us better than we can know ourselves, which of course means that other people probably know us better than we know ourselves. In fact... This is exactly what the Bible teaches us, that we need the exhortation and the correction of others because they have a much better eye for our sin than we do. So the main obstacle to sanctification is this deceitfulness of the heart that we're told about here that destroys self-knowledge. And so the way, the, the, you know, we may be unknown to ourselves, which is what, you know, what the scripture is saying, but, but not to others, to the wise people in our lives. And this, this is an absolutely scary, frightening thing, isn't it? to know that to the wise people in our lives, we're an open book. Now, I say that, it's not exactly true because, because their hearts are deceiving them too, to a certain degree. But we can be sure of this, that they probably know us better than we know ourselves. They're not completely, not ultimately. That belongs to only God. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. And then comes the, the, the answer to the question in the next verse. Look there. Who is it that can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. So what we've learned there is that we, in fact, are fully known by God. We are an open book before him. I mean, go back to Psalm 139 and read that again. Nothing's hidden from him. He is not duped by our charades and false pretenses the way we are, the way other people are. Man may look on the outward appearance, but God cuts straight through to the heart to test the innermost motivations and desires uh, that are there that we are, for the most part, completely unaware of or at least hiding from others, at least for now. Because one day, on the day of judgment, which is alluded to there in verse 10, everything will be laid bare and we will finally see ourselves as we really are as God has known us to be all along, we'll be outed. That's the promise. And on that day, we will know the truth. And here's the truth, that we cannot fully know God nor fully comprehend his ways. What we know, we only know in part, but we are fully known by him and we will be fully known in the judgment. That is our lot. We would sinfully have it the other way around. Thirdly then, 
what we have to do then, we have, a, we have a knowing limit, not just a knowing need and a knowing problem, but there really is a knowing limit, and that's what it means to be truly human. That's what we're after as we contemplate these things, is how do we then live within the confines of our, the limits of our creatureliness, not as constraints, but actually as freedoms to the kind of life that God means for us to live. And there are a couple things here as well, and the first is that we have to know, what is the knowing limit? We have to know that true knowing is not knowing. Can I say that again? True knowing is not knowing. I have in mind that verse. If, I know we're skipping around everywhere. You just got to hang in there with me, okay? If you look at 1 Corinthians 8, verses 2 and 3, it's the fourth one on the list there. Paul says, if anyone imagines, I love this, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not, not, not yet know as he ought. If you think you know, if, you're, if you know that you know, here's what this means. If you know that you know, in reality, you don't know that you don't know. Isn't that humbling? Don't you know that person I'm talking about? That person who knows that they know? And Paul says, yeah, okay, if you think you know that you know, in, in truth, you, you're in bad shape, buddy. You don't know that you don't know. If you think that you know God, that you've got him all figured out, you don't know him. If you think you know how the world works, that you've got all the answers, you do not yet know as you ought to know. The knowing person is the one who knows how very little he knows. In the Bible, a know-it-all is a fool who is out of touch with reality. We are far too small to ever think that we don't need help with our knowing. Now, let me reiterate something I said a few weeks ago, okay, because I think it's so important. Uh, and that is that knowing, knowing is dependent upon revelation. We do not know apart from what God making himself known. And that means that there are some things that we can know because God has clearly revealed them to us. And then there are some things that we can't know because he's not revealed them to us. And, and you know, that he's purposely left them vague and they're simply beyond our limited understanding. The secret things belong to the Lord, right? But the things that are revealed belong to us. Such an important verse to see that. And so true knowing is, is knowing the difference. That there's mystery, but not, every, not everything is mystery. And finding the balance, right? There's mystery, but not everything is mystery. Anne Lamott said that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but actually certainty. <laughs> and I love that. That doubt with no certainty is obviously a bad thing, but so is certainty with no, let's use the word, curiosity. Faith Faith is curious. Faith is certainty that retains a level of curiosity because it knows the limits of its own knowing. And I'll be honest, for a lot of us, less certainty and more curiosity would be a really good thing. It would signal a better knowing. So true knowing, so seeking to be graciously human then means, means first embracing our limits, uh, this true knowing we're talking about, but then, and then, uh, you know, looking up to the Lord and trusting in God's expertise in all things, because, of course, though we don't know fully, he does. And Jen Wilkin, whose book we're using in the series, is really, really good here. So let me just quote her at length, if you don't mind. Here's what she says. She says, no, and you can get the book, but don't read ahead, because then you'll know uh, that we're stealing everything from her, and that'll be a bad thing, okay? So uh, she says, no, uh, I'm not an expert on my neighbor. Only God is. It may feel good to be quick to diagnose my neighbor's faults and prescribe a course of treatment, but my heart deceives me with the lie that I have any skill to do so. Recognizing this should help me walk in compassion towards those around me. Rather than assuming I know their motives and their difficulties, 
I can assume that neither I nor they can fully diagnose the problem, but God can. And then I can be quick to intercede for them instead of judge. No, I'm not an expert on myself, she goes on to say. Only God is. His word gives a true diagnosis of my state. And recognizing this should help me remain keenly aware of my propensity to believe my own self-promoting version of why and who I am. And no, she says finally, I'm not an expert on God. Only God is. Such knowledge should cause me to worship The depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God should bring me to my knees. His unsearchable judgments and unscrutable ways should inspire right reverence in the glorious fact that he makes himself known in ways my finite understanding can grasp should cause me to celebrate, to devote my life to the joyful duty of discovering what he has made known of himself. He reveals himself to those who seek him. And in seeing who he is, we see ourselves more clearly. Isn't that good? So we embrace the limits of our creatureliness. We know the limits of our own knowing. We trust God's expertise. But then lastly, let me just finish. And lastly, let me take us to the gospel and remind us that ultimately knowing is a knowing grace. And here's what I mean by that. Let's turn this around for just a minute and all this talk of what we can know and how we know and what we should know and what's the value of all the knowing that we have and so forth to say this, that what the scripture clearly teaches is that we are not saved by knowing but rather we are saved by being known. You see this turn of phrase. Uh, look closely at 1 Corinthians 8 again, verses 2 and 3. It happens elsewhere in the scriptures, but I just chose this to pick it up. Paul says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See, it's not knowing, it's being known. J.I. Packer says, that this means that, that knowing God is a matter of grace. That is, that it's due to God's initiative and follow-through. That it is God's knowing of us and not our knowledge of him that accounts for the relationship that we can have with him. That it's God's knowing of us that leads to our knowing of him. So the question is not really, do you know God? Though it's a good question to ask. The question really is, does he know you? And in the Bible, to be known by God means to be loved by God. That word means that... He is fully aware of us, that he has searched us and he knows us, as Psalm 139 says. That he knows everything about us, that he knows us through and through. That all of our comings and goings and all of these things. Listen to J.I. Packer again. He says, there is no moment when his eye is off of me or his attention is distracted from me. No moment, therefore, when his care falters. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking care of me in love. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based on, at every point, on prior knowledge of the worst about me. So that no discovery now can disillusion him about me and quench his determination to bless me. Isn't that awesome? There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things in me that my fellow humans do not see, that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see myself. There is equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants to have a relationship with with me so much so that he has given his son to die for me to realize that purpose. All, according to the Bible, all of God's knowing is foreknowing. That is, it's a love that comes before any of our doing. And here's the thing, okay? Here's here's where this gets fixed, this problem we have with knowing. If if, If you know that you're known and loved by God, and, you know, if that is true, then in that case, I don't have to be afraid of being fully known. The the gospel message is that God knows me all the way to the bottom. 
and he loves me still. What, what is the cross? The cross is God loving me with eyes wide open. With utter honesty about how difficult I am to love. About the cost of what it is to love me and, and then doing it anyway. And if he loves me like that, see, I don't, have to be, I don't have to be afraid of being fully known. And the other thing is, is I don't have to know fully. I don't have to know fully if I, if I know this. I can trust his inscrutable ways because there may be a lot I don't know. That I can't know. But there's one thing I do know. I can know this. I can know his heart for me. And that's enough. That's enough. Uh, there's a story. Let me just finish with this. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus sends his disciples off uh, on their own to do ministry. And they, they have tremendous success. They come back rejoicing in all of their success. In all of their knowing of the way things work. And Jesus really has to kind of step in and correct them. And here's what he says in Luke 10. He says, do not rejoice in your success. Don't rejoice in your knowing. Rejoice, he says instead, that your names are written in heaven. Let me paraphrase that for us. Don't rejoice in your knowing. Rejoice in being known. God knows you. If your faith is in Jesus, if you've put your faith and trust in him, your name is written in heaven. You are inscribed on the palms of his hands, and a mother would, would more, more quickly forget the baby nursing at her breast than he would forget you. There's a scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, C.S. Lewis's book in the Narnia series where Eustace, who's one of the children who has crossed over from our world into Narnia, he asks Edmund after an encounter with Aslan, he asks him about Aslan, he says, who, who is Aslan? Do you, do you know him? How do I get to know him? Do you know him, he asks, and Edmund's response is perfect. He says, <laughs> he says, yes, well, he knows me. See, the truth is, uh, we love, but only because he first loved us. If you know that, don't be afraid of being fully known. And you won't need to know fully. You can live in this weird, awkward, hard creatureliness that God's created for us, trusting in him. And so let's pray that he would continue to do that work in our hearts as we come to this table. Let's pray. So, Father, we do pray that you give us great grace, uh, that we would stop grasping after what is not ours, what belongs to you alone, thinking it to be the solution to all of our problems, when in fact what it is, is it's, is it's causing more problems for us. And instead, that we would, by your grace, embrace this clumsy, awkward state of being a human, being okay in being fully known, the magnifying glass of your of your knowing of us, being centered directly on us, and be okay with not knowing in full, because though you've not revealed everything to us, you have revealed to us your heart. And that's what this table's about as we come now to eat together around it. So in this meal, would you settle the issue of our unbelief? Would you place before our eyes yet again in this public portrayal of Christ crucified how you've loved us with eyes wide open, and if you've loved us at our very worst, then surely you love us no matter what happens. And that, that is the thing that could unlock our hearts. That is the thing that could free us from trying to control through all of our knowing. And so come, work in us in that way. We pray all this, uh, that you might be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
came in. And so he sends us now. Uh, we may not know where we're going when we leave today, but he does. And we go not just with his plan, having gone before us to prepare tables of blessing for us, even in the wilderness that we walk through, but we go with the power and the truth of this benediction uh, that he loves us. He, he doesn't love us on the other side of this week. He loves us into this week. So go, being loved into this week by him, hear these words and receive them by faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.